Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 13 of The Andrew Curtis Show. Unlucky for some, not for me though. I feel like I have hit the jackpot over the last few weeks with the guests I've had on this show and this week builds on, um, well, someone I felt incredibly privileged to speak to last week, Dacca Keltner. Uh, from uh, he's a professor of psychology at Berkeley, and I asked him if there was someone else that uh, I could speak to um, who was connected with his work along research for the greater good. And that brings us to this week. I'm incredibly privileged to be speaking to Emiliana Simon Thomas. Uh, now she is the science director at the Greater Good Science Center. Um, to give you an idea of who these people are and what they're about, listen to this. This is off the um, GGIA. Uh, website gtia.berkeley.edu um, describing what the Greater Good Science Centre is all about. It says, um, since 2001, the GGSC has been at the fore of a new scientific movement to explore the roots of happy and compassionate individuals, strong social bonds and altruistic behaviour, the science of a meaningful life. How cool is that? I cannot tell you how pleased I am that people like that exist. <laughs> Organizations like that exist. So many people want to tell you that the world is falling apart. And yet there are also um, places like this that can give us hope for the world that we live in as well. So um, at the risk of saying the things that I'm going to talk about with Emiliana during the podcast, I'm going to shut up now. But I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed speaking to her. So today I am very pleased, thrilled, privileged, in fact, to be joined by Emiliana Simon-Thomas. She is uh, one of the directors of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. And yes, she joins me now. Hello. Hello, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. I, uh, I, I must admit, as soon as I discovered that there even was such a thing as a Greater Good Science Center, uh, it gave me hope for the world. <laughs> Um, well, good. <laughs> so why don't you tell me, first of all, for yourself, how did you come to be involved in uh, this, the science of happiness? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was interested as a younger person in psychology and in neuroscience. And uh, in my graduate studies, I examined the uh, interplay between emotions and thinking. So how do certain feeling states influence uh, the kinds of decisions that we make, the kinds of information that we remember? Uh, my my key community was a neuroscience community. So in that space, there isn't a terrific amount of specificity when it comes to emotions. You either yeah. feel uh, the set of good ones or the set of bad ones. And the set of bad ones, uh, in some regards, are much more easy to elicit in, in a laboratory context. So I spent several years uh, subjecting you know, <laughs> college students to images that would make them feel upset or make them want to distance themselves and then asking them difficult cognitive questions. And, okay. and I was really interested in how, again, these emotional states influence their, their reasoning and, and logic and decisions. And um, at the end of that path, uh, what I was really after was was trying to bring a little bit more complexity to the claim that emotions might be uh, intrinsically harmful to reason. I, right. That was something I felt was, was just not true, but um, there was a fair amount of evidence uh, trying to support that claim. That, you know, really emotions are kind of this optional thing that are not that important, and yeah. in fact, they get in the way of our rationality. <laughs> anyway, uh, my data definitely disputed that claim, and all the while, uh, I was in a position where I would present my work to neuroscientists, but also to social psychologists and emotion scientists. And mm. the emotion scientists and social psychologists always said, well, okay, this is super interesting, but what about the positive emotions? And what about the pro-social emotions? And I said, yeah, what about those? <laughs> that's what I'm doing next. And, and so when I finished my dissertation, that's, that's what I turned to. I, I really wanted to understand more about the states that... Um, make us feel invested and interested in the welfare of others. Yeah, well, I mean, you've touched on a lot of really powerful thoughts there as well. I mean, something when I first started to understand the, um, uh, you know, the science of, I guess it's, it's broadly known as positive psychology now. Is that is that a fair overview? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that that's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that It's actually so new. Like, it, it, it stunned me that this is something that, you know, in terms of there being a, a greater body of work behind it, um, that it is something that we've only really started to try and quantify more clearly in the last, say, 25, 30 years. 
You're absolutely right about that. Positive psychology is a, a nascent field, and in, in many ways, it's a reaction to the the field of psychology prior, mm-hmm. uh, which was was explicitly focused on trying to understand how we could help people um, recover and or avoid. Uh, difficult experiences and challenges and impairments to to well-being and and you know pioneers like Marty Seligman and Ed Diener and Sonia Lubomirsky saw this space and thought you know why don't we try to look into the possibility that uh, people can flourish people can be better than just not suffering right they can be better than just not struggling with difficulties but in fact they can optimize their own lives. And that's really kind of the genesis of positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason you might have detected a tiny bit of hesitance in my, yes, that's fair to call yeah. in the whole space positive psychology is really that the Greater Good Science Center has a, has a really explicit focus on something beyond an effort to improve one's own life, to seek happiness in, in one's own sort of yeah. self-focused sphere, but rather is responding to the the emergent finding that, that sort of pops up again and again from positive psychology studies, particularly those on happiness, which, uh, which, 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 which illuminate the importance of our social connections to our attempts to, towards becoming happier or actually are, are, are being happy to begin with. Yeah. You actually, you, you kind of read my mind a little bit too, because one of the things that um, I did want to get more of a comment from you about too was that this idea of, of pursuing happiness from a, um, uh, I guess, a, an outside standpoint can first of all sound like a, a, a kind of a selfish pursuit. People saying how they they all want to, you know, I want to be happy. Um, but what I love about what is coming out of your work and um, I guess the, the wider body of work on this as well is that idea that uh, happiness, when pursued as just a a selfish pursuit it's a kind of oxymoronic you know you, you someone who pursues happiness just for the, their own selves uh, compared to someone who is aware of the greater good of others around them um the two can't even compare well you're right and i would go even further and suggest based on research done by iris mouse a professor at uc berkeley and june gruber at the university of colorado mm-hmm. that when you pursue happiness in a self-focused kind of pleasure and enjoyment type of manner, uh, it actually doesn't work. Yeah. You actually end up less happy than the person <laughs> who never had the idea to pursue happiness to begin with. Yeah. So so, so what, what, what we're really sort of digging into is this notion that real sustainable enjoyment, the kind of enjoyment that contributes meaningfully to happiness, uh, that, that really puts people in a position of lifelong happiness is drawn from uh, positive, benevolent interactions and relationships, strong mm. relationship bonds with other people. Okay, well, let's let's get into that in a little more detail then, because I think those are, um, for anybody listening as well, um, it would be great to hear, I guess, more specifically about what some of those actions are and, and how they, they outwork themselves in our lives. Yeah, so, f- for example, we know that people who uh, are more grateful or who experience more gratitude day in and day out. And gratitude is a way of acknowledging your sense of common humanity and interdependence with other people, right? You're acknowledging something good that's happened that mm-hmm. has come to you, not through your own effort or your own status or your own talent, but mm-hmm. from the actions or efforts of others or something outside of yourself. So doing that, be, being a more grateful person, you're also a happier person. You're also a healthier person. <laughs> You're also someone who is more resilient to trauma and stress. And so these these little sort of pieces of our prosociality, we would call it, that yeah. is these states yeah. of really orienting towards the, the welfare of others. Uh, compassion would be another example. Um, it, as we look closely at, at them, we see that people who, uh, who score highly or who express these characteristics strongly in their lives and in their daily behaviors are also those people who fall higher up on the scale of happiness levels. Yeah. Something that shows up for me actually while you, you say that too, it does start to highlight the fact that I think for a long time we've had this um, artificial uh, divide, I suppose, between our, our personal self and if I was to say our professional self. 
Um, and what I find striking with a lot of these observations too is that we, in our workplaces, for example, and in terms of productivity and, and, and things like that, um, I should say too, in, in my own work, I, I work in terms of in training and, um, uh, and recruitment for people and things like that and, and, and workplace cultures. Um, and this idea, sometimes when you go in somewhere and say, hey, you know, you'd actually get more productivity if people cared for one another and looked out for one another. Uh, you get this raised eyebrow. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, this isn't something that we're saying for your, your just your personal world as well, right? This is something that, that can have a positive effect in, in every aspect of life. That's how we think about it. Um, I think you're right to point out that it's it's a myth that we should leave our baggage at home when yeah. we're at work. Mm. It's a it's a it's an untenable ideal mm. to to walk the world in a kind of dual personhood. And what I mean by that is <laughs> like go that. home, be kind and loving and yeah. uh, enjoy people and laugh and mm. and work through conflict and resolve differences and then go to work and be some kind of emotional automaton that mm. simply is focused only on the performance metrics that, that seem like they're most important for the bottom line. Mm. In actuality, uh, we are the same human uh, in both contexts. Yeah. Yeah. And to the extent that we try to stifle ourselves, you know, hip, uh, sort of systematically, uh, it, it's it's a disservice to our capacity to even be that authentic person when we go home. Yeah, where do you think that thinking came from? Uh, the the sort of productivity and and uh, yeah, the, the two selves. <laughs> the, yeah, I you know I think it's related to the to the main question that drove me towards this science to begin with. This 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 claim that that emotions are the enemy of reason. There's mm. this idea that uh, we have to, in order to be reasonable, we have to be not emotional. We have to go to work and be logical and reasonable and, and not bring any of the um, you know, sure. in, in, intrinsic emotional functioning that, that we are endowed with by mm. our you know, genetic um, experience and history. We, we can't bring that. We have to just be logical and cold and, and, and rational. And, and in fact, number one, we're not very good at that to begin with. And this is, you <laughs> know, Danny Kahneman won a Nobel prize for, yes. for pointing this out. Yeah. So number two, when we you know, habitually attempt to suppress or stifle our emotions, we know that that's a, that's a surefire attempt or, or strategy for chronic stress and cardiovascular yeah. disease. So it's, it's really it's not helpful for the bottom line at the end of the day to encourage people to come to work and bring something that is not uh, a full representation of their of their humanity. Mm. So tell me then, what are some of the, the, the things that you have discovered in terms of that relation between emotion and, and decision making? Yeah, so what we know is that there's a number one, a, a much more interesting and w- wide range of specific kinds of emotions that that help us. Uh, navigate different situations that we encounter in life. So, for example, in in my own research, as I told you before, I was only studying these kind of, you know, umbrella negative states. And Mm. uh, you might think, oh, yeah, if you frighten somebody, they're going to make a bad decision. Well, it turns out it depends on what kind of decision you're asking them to make. If you're asking them to make a decision that has something to do with uh, close proximity and language and the kinds of things we do in intimate social interactions, the decisions will actually be slower and less accurate. Why? Can you, can you give me a more specific example of what kind of a decision that would be? Uh, well, it's not going to sound very, uh, <laughs> very real life because this is a laboratory That's setting, okay. but uh, okay. the example is basically asking people to remember the identity of, of a letter as it uh, sort of appears and disappears in sequence over time. Okay. Uh, so so it's, it's called an end back task. You, you show people a sequence of letters and you ask them, is this letter the same as the one you saw four, okay. uh, four times ago? And basically, people get worse at that task. They're slower and less accurate if you frighten them. Okay. Now, let me just change it a minute. And it's not necessarily about asking someone to remember the identity of a letter, but instead, what's the position? What's the spatial location of that letter, right? So in a laboratory setting, we need the task to look exactly the same, but we're we're manipulating the demand. And here, the demand was, this, is it a verbal task or is it a spatial task? Okay. When it's a spatial task, 
frightening somebody or, or putting them into an aversive of emotional state, actually they get better. They get more accurate and they get huh. faster. Wow. So this is our nervous system responding adaptively to circumstances that uh, that, that that are that, that, that elicit fear. If you're afraid, yeah, you need to be able to figure out how to get yourself and your body out of harm's way. Right. And you don't need to be good at sort of close proximal minutia uh, that are related to, you know, social interactions. Wow. So, you know, again, it's not a, it's not a one shot deal where a certain kind of emotion will always inter interrupt, you know, logical thinking or rationality, but rather even within an emotional sort of uh, category of, of yeah. aversion or fear, depending on what kind of thinking you're tapping or challenging, the uh, the either benefit or, or detriment will will, will be different. Um, in the space of positive emotions, right, in, in the state, space of emotions like compassion or gratitude or awe, right, that state of being in the presence of something greater than yourself, mm. um, there's evidence that positive emotions tend to make us uh, better at coming up with novel, innovative solutions to problems. Mm -hmm. So being in states of kind of anxiety or stress, we get a little bit more myopic in attending to information that's in front of us. And once sure. again, that makes a lot of sense. But in this in, in, in the kind of I'm safe and I trust the the, the circumstance and the environment around me, I, I have more latitude to notice uh, the possibility, the creative possibilities around me, and I tend to be better at, at, at creative problem solving. Yeah. Wow, that's blowing my mind. I'm, I'm thinking actually in terms of applications of that, um, you know, when we, we spoke a little earlier too about why it was that in, in workplaces we took this kind of uh, emotional automaton kind of approach. Um, and understanding that, you know, emotions can have, uh, you know, be helpful, you know, an emotional response can be helpful in a certain kind of decision making and unhelpful in another. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking how, you know, that whole idea of using using fear, um, even though I guess we say, yeah, we, we don't use emotion at work. I would say fear is probably one of the most commonly applied uh, motivators that we have, you know, do this or you're fired. Um, yeah. <laughs> do this or you'll be yeah. in trouble, you know. Um, and we do see that that can have a, a, an effect for us getting what we want in, in some contexts. So I wonder if yeah. it's just one of those things where, you know, we're human beings, we're great pattern, uh, pattern recognition um, machines as well. Uh, we go, oh, look, if I, if I frighten someone, I get a better response in this kind of thing. I'll use that for everything. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it may be the fastest and seemingly most immediately effective technique, but it's not a good long-term strategy, yeah. and um, it, it, it comes with a cost. Um, I did want to uh, say a little bit more about the, mm. the sort of positive emotional space yes. that is yes. related to this same little thread, which is, you know, I did share that positive states, uh, amusement, joy, pleasure, mm. seem to be something that benefits our, our, our capacity in the, in the realm of, of, creative, of creative solution finding. Yeah. Uh, there, there's other research, though, to suggest that if you're in a position where you have to find, discover what's wrong with, uh, with a problem. Mm. So let's imagine, again, you're, you're, you're given a, 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 a extensive mathematical proof and you're and, and the task at hand is where's the mistake in this what's the or, or you're given a, a written argument with uh, lots of references and and uh, claims about how something works and again your task is what's wrong with this find the mistakes in this figure out why it's not going to work or, or how you could critique it mm. being in a a, a sort of a, a joyful exuberant uh, chipper state isn't going to be the most constructive kind of emotional state to be in so if you okay. know i got to sit down and and critically analyze this particular piece of work it's not a good idea to watch like your favorite comedian for 20 minutes before <laughs> that and then sit down because you're, you're right. just not as attuned to the details that are perhaps inaccurate or critical you're more likely to sort of embrace something at its face value mm. so stress right which kind of uh, passes across the negative emotions, but also shouldn't always be thought of as a negative emotion. That that sort of mild stress that that makes us alert and vigilant can be a very useful sort of yeah. state to 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 leverage when we're in a position where we need to be critical. Hmm. 
just the understanding of that, I mean, again, from speaking at a high level too, speaks to why, in my, my perspective anyway, the whole idea of emotional intelligence as a, as a broader topic has, has kind of raised in um, people's uh, awareness over the last little while, because this, this idea that, you know, what do we do with what we feel? What does it mean yeah. and how could it help us? Um, I don't, I don't know. For me, I kind of had this moment where, you know, you almost have like an out of body experience and you look back and you say, man, it's weird that, you know, even for myself, I'm like, man, I don't know what to do with what I feel sometimes. And a lot of times I think in our culture, our response is, well, just ignore what you feel. Uh, or suppress it. Yeah. Or suppress it. How bizarre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> how, exactly. How weird are we? <laughs> no, it's, it's totally weird. One of the, one of the terms that I really like these days that doesn't have a great amount of scientific traction yet, but okay. I prefer it over a term that does. So the term mm. you may have heard of in the space of emotional intelligence is mm. emotion regulation. Okay. And the reason I don't really like that term is because it exactly does kind of convey this notion that what we should be doing with emotions is sort mm. of putting a harness on them and forcing them into the direction we want them to go. When in fact, I don't, I don't see emotions that way, just foundationally. And uh, the, the term that I prefer is emotional agility. Okay. And this is, again, the ability to use the emotions that emerge in your life day in and day out to help guide the most productive and constructive response to the circumstance that you find yourself in. Um, in our happiness teaching and in the science, what we have found and what we often try to emphasize is that happiness by no, no way ha means trying to feel enjoyment or pleasure all the time or convey that you are happy and chipper and, and enthusiastic all the time. Mm. In fact, the people who fall into the category of very happy are the ones who have what we call uh, the highest level of emoversity, okay. uh, and that is uh, they're 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 equally willing to engage with moments of sadness, with moments of anger, with moments of stress, but they have the skills to sort of uh, recover from them and to right. use the signal in a way that is productive and constructive. They don't get stuck in uh, anger for some very long period of time and want to uh, be hostile unnecessarily, um, and they don't suffer from depression or uh, chronic anxiety. Mm. Rather, these they experience these states and then they move through them in a productive manner. And again, that's what happiness comes from. It does not come from the aim to uh, try to acquire, uh, you know, perpetually increasing luxury in order to feel pleasure all day long. That, that's really not a, a route to happiness that works. Yeah. Uh, I mean, two, two observations. Uh, first one, Emoversity sounds like an amazing name for like a My Chemical Romance album. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or even the band name. To I know, with. right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the other thing too, like that that idea of um, happiness as well. I, I've heard uh, uh, someone else put it this way, so I'd love to get your thoughts on it. That in, in our culture, when we don't understand happiness to be something that has to be, um, you know, kind of altruistic, um, but also. Well, the, the point that they had made was that often in our culture, and I say this, you know, Western world kind of thing, that we're, when we're unhappy, we're unhappy for two reasons. Um, we're unhappy because of whatever we've attributed our unhappiness to. And we're also unhappy that we're unhappy. Uh, yeah. You know, that there's this belief that if, you know, if you're unhappy, then you're screwed up, you know, because if you've, you know, you, 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 you're kicking butt in life, you should be happy all the time, uh, which is a pathway yeah. to massive unhappiness. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's very consistent with what I what I was trying to explain mm. just a moment ago, that really unhappiness is the result of an effort to pursue happiness by feeling good all the time. Yeah. That's what happens when you think, oh, I should be happier than I am right. all the time. Yeah. Then uh, that, that that's something that that brings you stress and anxiety uh, when, when you are unhappy or let's be more specific when you're sad mm. because perhaps someone you love has died or you've sure. lost something that really mattered to you. That is a legitimate and evolved state that is important to your right. evolutionary existence. And, right. and the most important part of it perhaps is that you express it and your expression in the company of trusted others 
uh, draws them to comfort and support you, which helps you recover from that experience and perhaps learn and grow. Yeah. So again, when we hold back, we, we deprive ourselves of that experience. Mm. Uh, when we get angry that we're feeling sad instead of just expressing it and using it to guide the next experience, um, we're, we're, we're creating something that's also maladaptive in the, in the path towards happiness. Yeah, yeah. That is so powerful. I love that thought. <laughs> uh, that, that connection between, um, yeah, just being able to, I guess, sit in an emotion um, mm -hmm. and, and, and be able to draw, uh, I was to say, draw a truth from it as well, what, what it points to our thinking. Um, mm -hmm. is, is that something, I guess that's, that's probably a, um, another way of expressing what your work has been about too. Is that fair? Yeah. And I, and I think what the elephant in the room around those two statements is the research and scientific inquiry into mindfulness, right? right. This yeah. idea that perhaps being more self-aware, being mm. more cognizant of what is truly happening in, in and around us in the moments that we're present uh, is, is, is a value to our health, well-being, and happiness. Mm. Um, when we can, uh, again, instead of having an emotion and worrying about what's going to happen next or fretting about what it says about who we are in our communities or what people will think of us, yeah. um, instead we're mindfully, you know, again, sitting with it, experiencing it, noticing the sensations and the thought patterns that emerge um, and perhaps allowing the organic expression to to come out, uh, that is something that is a service to us. And and um, yeah, there's we do we do follow and track and emphasize the importance of mindfulness as a as an opportunity as as both a kind of springboard and a catalyst for happiness. Yeah, and and what I love too about particularly that, you know, the work that you were doing here is that it is so scientifically backed up as well. Yep. Um, yep. That there is something, again, when I talk about those kind of corporate settings where I say things like, uh, you know, if you cared for your people, they would perform better and you get this, you know, raised eyebrow of, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, but this is stuff that, that is being proven um, in a, you know, in a laboratory setting. And actually it's why I pressed you on, on, on that example from earlier on, even though it might sound a little cold and detached to people about, remembering where letters are, um, that, yeah. that this is this is actually a, a proper scientific process. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, tell me how you feel on a scale of one to 10. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so tell yep. me more about that. How, how does that process work for you so that you know when you're talking about these, um, uh, I, I, I hesitate to say kind of emotional study and things like that, but how you, you can make sure that you've got some tangible, really, you know, um, defendable conclusions that come out of it. Yeah, well, maybe the easiest way to do that is to just walk you through one oh, of the do. findings that, that we have from one of the things that Dacker Keltner, who is the co-instructor for our Science of Happiness course, mm. uh, which maybe you know about or maybe you don't, but we yes. teach a, a massive open online course. And uh, as of this month, we've had more than 450,000 people enroll in it. And for each person that enrolls, we invite them to answer questions on surveys. And we're really interested in drawing scientific insights from the people's responses to the surveys. Yeah. Um, in order to make the responses more interesting uh, and more valid, we also ask people to nominate a third party. So if you were in the course, I would say, Andrew... I'd like you to fill out all these surveys, but so as not to be limited by the possibility that you're responding to the surveys in the way that you think I would like you to, right? Or that mm -hmm. you think other people would think was good. We call that demand characteristics. I also say, Andrew, tell me the name of and the email of somebody else you know mm -hmm. who you who would be willing to answer questions about you. And cool. so I, and then we send that other person an email. We say, hey, you know, your friend Andrew said you might be willing to answer some questions about him. We're studying the impact of learning about happiness and perhaps uh, uh, you'd be willing to do so. And we ask the peer, that's we call that person your peer, uh -huh. uh, similar set of questions. How close are you? How often do you interact with Andrew? And, and um, how do you think Andrew has been in the last couple times that you've interacted with him? And we give them a set of different emotion words. Has he been cheerful and happy? Has he been compassionate and nurturing? 
Has he been irritable and agitated? Has he been sad and hopeless, <laughs> right? Those are four examples. Right. And what we find is that when, you're, if, if, when your friend or your peer, who we call a peer, mm. uh, describes you as, uh, as someone who's high in the, what we would call pro-social characteristics, so compassionate, grateful, yeah. um, uh, that you're, you're most likely to also be described by your friend as in a relationship that's exceptional. So okay. exceptional is at the highest end, you know, sort of poor, okay, ex excellent, exceptional. Yeah. And here's the second half of that, that, that study that we're doing. If you are in a relationship or you've nominated somebody else, a third person who, who, who describes their relationship with you as exceptional, your scores, your personal scores, self-reported scores on metrics of well-being, so subjective happiness, flourishing, um, uh, for the for the alternate direction, loneliness and stress are yeah. better. Yeah. Wow. So, so so you're less stressed, you're less lonely, you're happier, you're more likely to score high on a measure of flourishing if you're rated by your friend as being in a relationship that's exceptional. Right. And then the second the first half of that was you're in a relationship that's exceptional if you're somebody who your friend sees as being highly pro-social more so than being positive, right? And that is just being kind of funny, being charming, not being that sad, right? Right, right. So, so these are the kinds of questions that we're trying to get into to really understand how important our relationships are, how important uh, are the dynamics of how we think of ourselves and other people think of us are and, and mm. our connections are to our happiness. Happiness is other people, huh? Well, it's, it's our ability to connect to, uh, to, to, to be generous and kind and to contribute to something beyond ourselves. Yeah. And those are the three pillars, in my view, of, of what's really promising. Now, I don't want to dismiss the fact that we know, and, and we're not the ones trying to, to, to campaign on this level, but we know for certain that you know your sleep is important to happiness. If you're yeah. not getting enough sleep, you're not gonna you're not gonna be as happy as you could be. Right. Um, your level of physical exercise is really important for happiness, and and we don't focus on that not because we don't think they're important. We know they're wildly important. But any wellness uh, program in an in, in an organization that you that you uh, would find would already be advocating those kinds of health related behaviors. Yeah. So we're saying, yeah, those are great. That's important. But there's still more people can do, and and the and the best they're going to do for themselves is going to be to really uh, sort of tap into their pro sociality. Mm, yeah, and and this idea too that that happiness can be taught. I'd love to. Uh, I should say by the way, I have signed up for that course. I will be starting in oh, September. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to it. Fabulous. <laughs> um, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, but uh, this this idea that uh, when people perceive happiness, um, again, some people can see it as a trait that either you have or you don't. You know, you can think of somebody uh, to put on my devil's advocate. Um, hat, which I quite enjoy wearing, uh, that, yep. that, you know, you think of that person who you are, oh, yeah, but they're just a bit grumpy. Um, but, mm -hmm. but what's cool to me, and, and you talk about this, I think even in the intro video for the, for the course, that there's a huge amount of our happiness, which is not just a genetic thing or, uh, you know, whatever, a huge amount that can be influenced by our own behaviors. And that's, I guess, the, the fundamentals behind the course. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, like almost anything else we want to do in life, uh, we're lucky that we now understand that the nervous system is malleable and mm. uh, it is going to make more available the experiences that are related to the uh, the way that we spend our time and the experiences that we have. Mm. So, um, uh, if you want to learn how to play the ukulele, then uh, you have to practice. Mm. And mm. if you've already learned how to play um, the harp, you might have to unlearn some of the sort of automatic <laughs> uh, sort of motor sequences that you already know in order to sort of become strong at using a different set of motor sequences that would help you become the expert that you want to be on the ukulele. Um, it's the same for happiness. You know, there are certain ways of thinking. There are certain kinds of habits and reflexes that we have grown up with that are partly a function of our childhood experiences, partly a function of our culture, and mm. partly a function of our of our inborn genetic endowment. There's certainly evidence that certain uh, neurotransmitter receptor mm. uh, 
qualities and characteristics make perhaps it easier for some people to feel joy in response to a joyful stimulus. That doesn't mean that the person who is on the, on the lower end of that isn't capable of, of moving their own baseline. Mm. It simply means that there is some degree to which your genetic endowment sets your baseline for what's possible. But Mm. on top of that, there's a tremendous amount of malleability and, and the pursuit of happiness, the idea that we can learn, I can, some of us can teach and that others can learn and, Mm. and, and become happier really is, is it's not a one shot. I'm going to do it in one sitting kind of thing. It's, it's, it's gradual, it's eventual, um, it requires sort of practice and effort, just like any other skill. Yeah, actually, something I it, listening to you speak now, even for me, that that kind of hit me on a deeper level too. And you speak about that idea of um, malleability. That mm-hmm. again, when you talk about any other kind of skill, um, it is, I guess, intuitive to me that yeah, sure, if you practice this thing, um, you will get better at it. Um, I, I think it's the first time I've really deeply thought about that idea of, of your emotional well-being and, and this, this idea of um, being able to practice those things as a deliberate act as well. Um, uh-huh. I guess what I'm, what I'm seeing for myself is that often I guess I would have thought of those sorts of things as, well, if I'm doing everything right, then I'll just feel happy anyway. Yeah, I, I think that there there is a good argument to be made for the idea that you can structure your life in a manner that you are spending more hours engaged in experiences that you know really bring you sustained and genuine happiness. Mm. Uh, there is another argument to be made for the possibility that there are things you could do deliberately in in a given moment that maybe are different than what you used to do Mm. that would would bring you more potential for 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 happiness an example that i often like to use is around the resolution of conflict um you might think oh why are you talking about conflict in a course on happiness and Mm. and the reason is because it happens there's (laughs) you know i'm I'm not here and nor is dacker to argue that you know humans are you know there will be a day when there will be no conflict there will always be conflict as long as we have progress we'll Mm. have conflict Mm. um we don't need perhaps to suffer or sustain conflict for as much as we do Mm. but um uh, at the personal level, uh, one thing that we talk about at the Greater Good Science Center is, you know, what are the what are the tools that we can use to resolve conflict? And mm. one of the simplest ones we all know about, we've all heard about it, is apologizing. Right. But it's perhaps almost shocking to hear how much people dislike apologizing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 and they don't really, if you say, well, why, why don't you want to apologize? What, what don't you like about it? It's yeah. not that, well, uh, I, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't like it. Well, so then there's a, there's an opportunity right there to really number one, sort of try to become cultivate some deeper awareness of what it is that bothers you what happens in your body in your mind when you are put in a a position where you're poised with the opportunity to apologize and and what are you really afraid of and Mm. and if you did it how would things change and what we know scientifically is that when people apologize they feel a whole lot better not that not not only the apologizers, but the apologizees, yeah. right? So, so and and it and it initiates a cascade of interactions that lead to reconciliation, that lead to you know a regaining of trust and the possibility that you know there's 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 cooperation in the future, right? Yeah. Which is something that benefits everyone. And it's not a requirement, you know, that that when you apologize, you expect that you know the person will forgive you and reconciliation will occur. Yeah. But what we do know is that maybe there's a maybe there's an opportunity there to to shift a habit. You know, I, I yeah. talked about it before as unlearning the fingering that you may have learned to play the harp in order to right. learn new fingering for the ukulele. I'm not right. saying ukulele <laughs> players are happier than harp players. <laughs> I'm just saying that sometimes we have to unlearn something and yeah. then relearn something new. And that kind of practice, that kind of deliberate exercise yeah. can be as valuable as the sort of prioritization of your schedule or your lifestyle in a manner that, that, that enables you to spend more time doing the things that you know already bring you joy. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, in defense of your analogy as well, I think it's hard to imagine a weeping um, ukulele player. Yeah. That's, that's not <laughs> sure a, it's not an image that comes to mind easily. 
let, let, let's let's get into that and then I think a little bit more too when you're talking about that whole apology thing I, mean, I guess something else too that that strikes me is that it's amazing how often the very things that we need to do that are the best for us we don't want to do uh it's probably another another topic of discussion entirely but so when when somebody is when you are particularly on that topic then um approaching this idea of of apologizing and identifying somebody identifying well actually it's something i don't want to do you know what what approach do you take there um to possibly journey that person to a place where they are more readily able to apologize or see the value of it well, seeing the value of it, I'll start with that. I try to do by just presenting the data. I just say, look, here's what happens in the lives of people who apologize. And, and don't you want that, right? You're here because you want to learn about happiness. So I make the case mm. from that mm. at a personal level. Uh, you know, apology is an interesting one because it may be that it requires a stepwise approach, mm -hmm. right? It may be that, well, I'm not going to say uh, I'm sorry face to face to start, Right. Um, but I'd be willing to write it down, right? I'd be willing to, in my pri in, in, the, in the privacy of my own space, to write down and and just do it, like without necessarily uh, believing or or uh, sort of uh, embracing it. I'm just going to write down that right. I'm sorry in a way that conveys remorse, that conveys empathy for the other person, and that uh, and that conveys a. a uh, an aim to avoid recurrence, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm to remedy the, the the situation so that this won't happen again. So maybe sometimes there's a there's a case to be made when it's when when people have a lot of resistance to just practicing on paper by themselves and getting a little bit more comfortable, and mm. then maybe uh, practicing in a in an unreal situation with a third party who you do trust, who you don't feel vulnerable around. So if you are in a conflict with person A, maybe you sit down with person B who is not involved, right, but who is an ally, and you say, hey, listen, I'm going to just practice saying I'm sorry to you. And oftentimes when I am doing a presentation with a large group of people, mm. that's what I'll do. I'll just say, hey, pretend that this happened, right? And, and get into uh -huh. pairs and say sorry <laughs> to the other person. Okay. And then I'll do it the other way. Pretend that this happened and I'll, and I'll have them switch and, and apologize mm -hmm. to each other. So sometimes it's just the act of, of, of role playing, yeah. writing stuff down yeah. and then and then trying it. Right. Really just trying it out. And um, off, you know, I, I've, I've yet to have somebody come back and say, hey, you know what? I, I'm, I, it, it really hurt me. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, far, <laughs> yeah. far and away, the kind of feedback that that we get, and, mm. and we get this quite often from students in our in our course. Mm. You know, I didn't realize the grudges I have uh, that I hold, wow. and the and the, the the effort that I put into maintaining my sense of of righteousness. Yeah, uh, right. that, that that makes it impossible for me to reconcile, and and then I and then I have these, you know. Uh, unpleasant relationships in the world that 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 haunt me um, in in a, in a long term fashion. So, so yeah, it's it's a the the reconciliation piece is is surprisingly uh, impactful for people. Oh yeah, absolutely. Look, again, in, in in the work that I do, I I get to observe those who are you know either in leadership positions or as as team members, and you see the difference between people who can resolve something versus those who cannot. Uh, yeah, and it just you know. In some cases, it kind of gets into this death spiral, you know, where, where somebody gets a negative, has a negative interaction with somebody. Uh, and then because nobody can apologize or nobody can work that through, you're, you're colored, you perceive everything. You know, if, if something could be perceived two ways in the future and one of them is completely innocent and the other one is malicious, you'll start to say, well, that's malicious as well. And yeah, before you know it, you're not living in a very positive space. So that's right yeah you know i was thinking too do you ever have like any kind of big cathartic moments with people when you're kind of having these <laughs> i was just thinking when you're introducing these topics of, of uh reconciliation with people as well and these kind of big aha moments i mean i would imagine that would be quite a rewarding part of what you do too it's a it, i wish that i had more moments where there was a kind of intimacy and proximity yeah. Because most of the time right now, my interactions with people are either virtual, right? So this is online. Mm -hmm. Now, I do get very heartfelt, very touching cool. uh, feedback from students who, you know, spend a lot of time explaining how powerful 
um, what they've learned in the course has been to their lives and, and their, their sense of meaning and purpose and, and mm. happiness. Mm. Um, and then sometimes when I'm speaking to a large group in person, um, you'll get the person who, who really sort of touches, touches deeply with a, with a real experience and will share with the whole room, despite the, that being a particularly vulnerable share, uh, something that, that is tearful and, and yeah. real. Yeah. about about how how much relief or transformation they feel and often this is actually in the space of forgiveness less yeah, so right. in apology yeah. and forgiveness is also a very powerful uh piece of reconciliation and again being able to uh touch or, or uh, uh, perhaps have the potential for happiness in a in a situation where you're going to you're going to experience conflict in life yeah wow so let's let's open things up. We've got about fifteen minutes left. Um, so why don't you tell me? I guess when when you're looking at this kind of area of study too, like what what continues to energize you about it? What drives you forward to keep um, pursuing this this pathway of study? Do you think it could lead somewhere else in future? Tell me what's what's on your mind. Yeah, I mean, for me, I as much as I get excited about the numbers of people and the geographic. Uh, reach of our online course, I, I, I sometimes or I often just wish that there was a broader cultural shift uh, right. across, around the world that, that really, you know, we were in a time and particularly in the U.S., so this may be less, uh, less of a daily <laughs> challenge for, for you, but in the U.S., we're really, really struggling with yeah. people understanding one another with very, very different opinions and, mm -hmm. you know, where priorities lie in terms of the distribution of resources and the efforts that we want to put into social services and uh, and, and compassionate policies and and I would really 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 love to convince uh, scientifically the more people who are in positions of power at a at a societal level um, that that the more pro-social uh, structural cultural approach is, is, mm. is, is something that is productive, um, and not, not, not gonna, I, I feel, I, I wish we could transcend some of the historic, uh, rendering of, of what it means to be human. Cause mm. often I think it's based on this, you know, humans are kind of savage and self-interested right. and, right. you know, it's up to culture to kind of teach us to be nice and to teach <laughs> us to, you know, be polite, but and in, in fact, you know, biologically and evolutionarily, we're 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 highly poised to be pro-social and to cooperate. Yeah. And um, and and if we could invest more at a at a worldwide level in in incentivizing and strengthening that aspect of who we are, um, that 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 would feel like a great achievement to me. So yeah, getting the word out. Yeah. Yeah. Western wider. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, and this is where um, actually I should give people the address as well. So uh, the the Greater Good Science Center itself um, is at greatergood.berkeley.edu. Um, and actually, one of the things I love here too is that you've got uh, on certain sections of the site as well um, just different uh, things that people can do in order to achieve a more positive, you know, outlook about you know it could be gratitude. Uh, could be or reducing stress or could be awe or something like that. And these are all things right. that have come out of the studies that you've done as well. Is that right? Well, I, we are not the authors of every or, or even the majority of the studies that we feature on our sites. Okay. So we have we have the Greater Good website, which you just gave uh, the URL to. But we also have a second site that is ggia.berkeley.edu. Okay. And oh, that yes. site. That site is 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 uniquely a taxonomy or library of evidence-based activities, behaviors, or practices mm. that have been shown by researchers. And again, not us. We're drawing from the extant field of of researchers who study uh, these topics, and we we read their their publications carefully. They've already been peer reviewed and validated, and and then we write about them or distill them into a format that 
people who don't have that expertise can really use. Yeah. So, um, so, so yes, absolutely. GGIA.berkeley.edu mm. is a place if you know, hey, you know what I need in my organization or in my community is, is more empathy. Mm. You know, we're just not, we're just not getting there, you know, through our organic or our mission or whatever it is. Um, we, 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 you can look to GGIA to find some of the evidence-based practices that are out there and, and try to adapt them to your, to your context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually one thing that did come up on there too, and I'm, I'm thank you for, for that too, because I just realized I, I'd had in my mind, they were the same website, but you're right. They are different uh, URLs. Um, the, uh, the idea of awe. I love this. This is this is something I haven't heard about um, from uh, um, any other kind of place, really, in terms of this, this study, particularly in, into awe and what awe contributes to the human experience. Is it something you could share about very quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, awe is a is a is a fundamental part of the human experience through antiquity, right? We've been right. noticing things that are bigger than ourselves that challenge our sense of what's possible and what we can comprehend in a given moment. Mm. We just haven't spent that much time really documenting scientifically yeah. what the impact is, right? Well, I mean, there were there were traditions that knew it, right? The mm. the great cathedrals in in Europe, uh, or they were meant. They were huge and grand and they were meant to invoke this sense of awe. So really spearheaded by Dacher Keltner, my co-instructor, and also Pierre Carlo Valdesano, a professor, um, also at at, at, gosh, I actually don't remember where his affiliation is, but um, they both have been studying what happens when you induce or evoke a sense of awe in people. Mm. And uh, what they found is that when, when you present people with an experience or a stimulus that, that leads them to say, oh, wow, you know, wow, their kind of eyebrows <laughs> go up. Yeah. Maybe the hair is on the back of their neck stand up. Mm. They tend to uh, speak in a more humble manner. They tend mm. to see themselves more humbly. They tend to be uh, perceive themselves more collectively. They're part of a common humanity. Yeah. Um, they tend to be more empathic and generous, more altruistic. So if an experimenter like walks by but drops all their papers suddenly, oh, right. it's usually staged, those who have been uh, uh, presented with an experience that, that, they, uh, that they describe as awe mm. will pick up more they'll 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 help they'll be more helpful Mm, than mm. people who have been you know perhaps presented with an amusing stimulus or something like that so awe is this very interesting kind of bringing people together kind of emotional state and um the 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 real applications for something like that uh which which dacker is is directly pursuing is in sort of br- forming community amongst people who have experienced particular kinds of traumas. So okay. uh, veterans, for example, right. who okay. are wow. you know, really struggling with the aftermath of the kinds of experiences that they've faced in, in war contexts, mm. then come back and, and often feel isolated and lonely and misunderstood, but mm. bring them together and send them on a rafting trip in the Grand Canyon uh, and they have this profound transformative experience of kind of being humbled, feeling very connected to the people that they're sharing this experience with. Yeah. And in some ways, just almost um, kind of shedding the layers of, of, of distress and difficulty that are built up around their traumatic experiences. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really promising and, as you noted, very, very young science. Mm. But... Um, but what we're really excited about it, and and it's in in a fun way, kind of an easy one, practically. Yeah, right? sure. It's too hard to, to to find a way to get out into nature and look at something that's really different than what you see on a typical day. Go do something awesome. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's good advice. It is good advice. It's good for you. Do something awesome. Okay. It's good for you. I like yeah, that. And good for your your like your friends and your 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 yeah. clan. Well, look, actually, that um, at the risk of touching on a slightly negative uh, side of things as well. Well, anyway, I, um, I had the privilege of actually attending a 12 um, step meeting a little while back mm-hmm. just because I wanted to understand that, again, you have a group of people who have had, uh, you know, been through a lot. It's, you know, whatever situation they're in, I think for most people from the outside in, they think of people who have drug or alcohol addiction as being at the, the bottom of the pile. 
Um, mm -hmm. And yet one of the things that I have seen is very common through these groups is that it's it's also about, it's not only just that community, but then, yeah, they, they go out there and they have these shared experiences of, uh, you know, say, you know, you were speaking in a particular a context for soldiers, but, you know, I've seen a very similar approach and, and a powerful um, effect of that where, yeah, you get people together who might have had a very difficult background, but if they have a, a shared experience of awe, how, how much healing there is in that. So, yep. Oh, I love yep. that. No, abs absolutely. And, and that, that those, those sorts of programs where you deliberately form a community of people in a, in a time that is particularly uh, vulnerable is, is, is emerging in a lot of different contexts. Uh, mm. The 12-step programs that you described, there's recently been a few publications about a, uh, a group prenatal care model, right? Where you're bringing okay. you know, people who are on the verge of becoming parents, which while well, we all describe it as this delightful, blissful, incredible life affirming transformation is also wrought with challenges and, and new, uh, new ways that we have to adapt. And, and um, so yeah, bringing people together in these transformative moments uh, mm. can be a really powerful way to, um, to promote healing and, and resilience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's another whole huge thing, isn't it? That, that has started to get yeah. a little bit more traction lately to this idea of resilience, as opposed to, I suppose, avoidance, which I think has been, uh, um, I mean, I know, I don't know if this is particularly relevant for you, but I, I've heard the emergence of things like, you know, trigger warnings um, on things, you know, courses and, and other material over the last little while, which from my layman's observation is basically is based on the understanding that, hey, this might relate to some difficult situation you've been in and you might want to avoid it completely. Um, which if you compare that to say perhaps a resilience um, approach, as I understand it, it's, it's not necessarily just throwing somebody into the deep end, but it is saying that, you know, in a healthy way of confronting these kind of things, we can become stronger. Um, is, yeah. that, is, that, is that a fair observation from your perspective? I think that's fair. And my only caution is that there is no perfect and mm. always correct response to every particular incident. And um, one of my colleagues, Philippe Golden, when he talks about regulating emotions or yes. uh, uh, um, being emotionally agile, will say that, you know, even though we talk a big game about how important <laughs> it is not yeah. to suppress your emotions right. routinely, there are times when actually suppressing your emotion might be the right thing to do. Yeah. For example, you're a parent and right. your child falls off the slide and they're bleeding Right, right. And right. Inside, you're going, oh, holy smokes! I'm terrified. I, I you know, we need help, but mm. you need to be the calm, cool collective and convince your child that, in fact, their life is not being threatened. They should stay calm, and mm. we're going to find a solution to this. So there are circumstances we're built with that capacity because it is useful in some contexts. I think the argument is, as we both kind of um, landed on, we've maybe overused it and overprioritized it. So. Sure. We've, 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 as a society or as culture, in some, in in many places, we've 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 kind of taken on this notion that avoiding or suppressing our emotions mm. routinely, in order to be rational and logical, is kind of the trick to success. When in fact, I think that the data doesn't support that that sort of objective. Amazing, isn't it? You think of uh, how long human beings have been around, and we're still trying to figure out how to be human, right? <laughs> how, how do I human? <laughs> well, I, you know, I guess yeah, it is amazing, and I do sometimes just uh, perhaps invoke my own awe when I think about how quickly and remarkably things have changed in my own lifetime. Sure. And you know, our our, our world shifts, our technology shifts, our way of spending our time shifts, and and with all of that we learn something new about about how to be and, and what it means to be. So mm. just part of it's just us trying to keep up, yeah. keep up with the, the time that we're, we're changing in and with. Okay. Well, look, last, last thought I'd love to get from you. I might steal an extra minute of your time if that's all right. Sure. Um, yeah. But just this idea about connection, that is something that's come up a, a lot. And uh, just as we were talking now, I, I'm aware that some people can, uh, you know, some people struggle to connect. Uh, or see it as a thing that, again, you either you either can do or can't do. Um, but in terms of your study, this idea that connection is something that we're made for, uh, and that 
Um, what, what, what would you say to somebody who you know, might be listening to this as well and, and hearing so much of what we've talked about being built on our ability to connect with people but not necessarily knowing where to start? Um, what's, what's been something that's, that's um, stood out strongly to you about where to begin that journey? Yeah, I mean, the importance of connection is is uh, well established far beyond and before any of the research that I've been doing. Yeah. Um, we know for sure that you know human beings are incredibly vulnerable at birth. And mm. in order to convince parents to dedicate and sacrifice everything for, you know, 40 plus years <laughs> to the care of their offspring, um, we've, we, we have a certain biological uh, uh, mechanism where we're, we're, we're overdosed with oxytocin for a little while. It makes us think that we don't care that we're losing sleep and right. we don't look you know, <laughs> presentable. Um, and, and to the extent that we experience a positive and trusting and safe connection with our care providers in those early years of life, uh, we, this, this determines and shapes our style of connecting as adults. So not including people who have you know, some kind of specific disorder or hmm. um, inborn uh, illness of sort that is related to their sociability, um, most of us really, really need to be in relationship with others. Being socially disconnected, being lonely, being isolated is, a, is worse for you than being a lifelong smoker wow. or being morbidly obese. Like uh -huh. we're not designed to exist in isolation. And um, so, so, so I'm not here to kind of share the evidence that, to, to make that case. It's, it's, it's been done well above and beyond me. Mm. Um, so yeah, connection, what I also would like to say is that there, connection doesn't mean quantity. Uh -huh. It really means quality. Wow. Um, yeah. In other words, some people go, oh, well, I'm not an extrovert and I, I don't have yeah. 55 friends. Mm -hmm. But the question, the question on the World Happiness Report that uh, is used over, you know, all over in, the, in lots of different countries to understand the sources and factors that influence happiness is, do you have one person that you could turn to? There's someone, is there someone you could turn to if times got difficult and someone who you know would help you? Mm. And yes or no answers are on that uh, have a, play a big role in, a, in national metrics of, of happiness and well-being. Mm. Uh, and, and, and in fact, way stronger than perhaps uh, my, what you might expect would come in terms of a boost to happiness uh -huh. from from increasing income. So yeah, if you right. increase yeah. the number of people by 10% who say I have someone to count on, yeah. uh, you, that's equivalent to increasing, you know, average income by a factor of three. So, wow. so, so connection is wildly important. Yeah. We're all, you know, at a very basic fundamental level, healthy people uh, will benefit from the capacity to connect authentically and deeply with another person. And, um, I don't think that there's anyone who, again, falls into that realm of mental health who, for whom having a, a, a more beneficent, kind of mutually um, constructive connection will be anything less mm. than good. Yeah. So instead of saying you need a pay raise to be happy, maybe go out and make a new friend. <laughs> something like that or be friends with the people you work with well yeah and trust them right have, yeah. have a great sense of trust and camaraderie in the workplace and and you, you are you're going to get more out of the people who who are working in that place than you will if you if you simply offer them a, a bonus emiliana this has been wonderful and and i my, my hope is that in people listening to this as well you mentioned about that that mission of getting this um, message out there to people so I, I very much hope that this contributes in some small way to that um, but I am really grateful for you spending this time with me. The Science of Happiness, by the way, I should say, um, if you do want to do the course, it's a free course. Uh, and if you just Google the Science of Happiness, um, I, I think it actually comes up in, in one of the first one or two um, uh, results there. But it's on uh, the edx.org website. Is that, that's correct? Edx.org. Um, that's correct. Happiness. Yeah. Amelia, Wonderful. thank you once again. Have the best day ever. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Uh, have a wonderful day yourself. Bye, Andrew. Bye-bye. Emiliana Simon-Thomas. Was I fanboying a bit too hard by the end there? I don't think I was. I think she deserved all the fanboying I could give her. Um, how cool, right? 
the fact that there is a science institute now that's looking into this deeper, these deeper questions of, uh, of meaning and connectedness, um, it really encourages me. And in fact, I have never done this before, but I'm going to do it now. You heard towards the end of that podcast that one of Emiliana's hopes was that word about this would get out to more people. Um, so if you enjoyed this episode, um, why don't you pass it on to somebody and see what they think? See what kind of a conversation you can have with them. Um, see what it stirs, because this understanding of li living a meaningful and connected life, uh, particularly in the Western world, you know, we are a, a very unhappy people. A lot of people on um, antidepressants and things like that. Uh, and if we can just increase the bonds of connection between one another, what a world we could live in. So why don't you have a conversation with somebody, maybe pass this link on to somebody else, uh, and then give me, give me a feedback at The Andrew Curtis Show, The Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. I really look forward to hearing back from you and we'll be back with another podcast guest uh, at some point in the future. Probably pretty soon. Stick around. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my pants.